Hey, yo, artists and musicians. Who, us? Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records? Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months. Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies and as quickly as three or four weeks. Get out of here. You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte and they can help you pick a package that fits your budget. Okay, who we talk to about this? You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order. So if I order 50 records? Mike's going to send you 55. If I order 75, I guess you will get 82 and a half? Something like that. Remember, you got to mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever. What was that address again? That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom made records in small quantities. Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order. And emailing now. Welcome to Low Profile with Mark Lee Morrison, the show that stands at least six feet away from popular music. My guest today, Julian Coster, is a master of the singing saw and a prominent member of cult heroes Neutral Milk Hotel and the founder of his own group, The Music Tapes, both bands part of the storied Elephant Six Collective in Athens, Georgia. He's also the creator of a lavish scripted podcast from WNYC called The Orbiting Human Circus, which is in production on its third season. His music is created using a variety of antiquated recording equipment and unconventional instruments. Julian spoke with me earlier in the fall of 2020 about his involvement in experimental pop, his homespun approach to production, and the perks of having a global audience for the music tapes and the Orbiting Human Circus. Julian, welcome to the podcast Low Profile. Thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me some of your time. Sure, you're welcome. It's been hard work maintaining such a low profile for such a large portion of my life just just for this moment, but uh, it was worth it. Yeah, th- it was it was made just was... for you. <laughs> well, um... that was the comedy portion. That was the comedy portion of the interview. Oh, it's um... over. No more comedy. That was all. I wrote. That was all I wrote. I wrote that. Uh, early this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to stop now. Well, Julian, you've had a project called The Music Tapes for quite some time now. Um, from what I understand, it sort of evolved out of your sort of childhood tape collaging or yeah. something like that? Yeah. Yes. So are we talking um, like pause tapes on the radio and... Uh, or field recordings uh, what 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 were you doing as a kid that sort of uh still is part of your aesthetic well the the music tapes i think um it got its name and, and it sort of it, it sort of came out of i think more teenage more like early early mid teenage years than uh than childhood uh because of um there was uh, a couple of specific I I'd, I'd, I'd gotten a four-track cassette recorder, which was um, I'd been recording on boomboxes, 
but basically anyway yeah so like i was i i, I spent a lot of time in my room uh uh when i was a teenager uh like a lot of teenagers of course and um but i wasn't able to really go out much and 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 uh especially at a certain point around the time that I had the four track, um, my, my mom and my stepdad had moved to, uh, this place called Florida. Um, and, uh, I, we'd, I'd lived in New York, um, previous to that. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I was making cassettes. Like I had a couple of friends, um, and, and they were really creative, like really interesting kids that I'd met there. So that was nice at school. But like I'd make cassettes for them, and that was kind of my way of making, of spending time with them. Was I'd try to make, I make these like, I'd come home from school and I'd like make this little world for them to listen to, uh, and I'd be really excited to make it for them and to share it with them. And so that was kind of how I started doing like little four-track albums. And uh, the Silly Putty Symphony was one that. I feel like it was almost like the first music tapes record because it was a big concept album and it had uh, um, sonic like sound effects like what I would later learn was called music concrete. I didn't know that about that yet, yeah, um, yeah. but like using sound and sound effects narratively, and then also like having narrative stuff that's almost like uh, you know I mean I think it's almost like taking like sort of like the idea of a concept album like the you know the Beatles made or something but then like I was sort of I was really into performance art and uh and my mom had uh, these did have radio theater records from like the 40s and stuff so I sort of also listened to that started listening to that a little so bit you, and being you like, soaked wow. that up like a sponge then yeah well i you know I, I was discovering that at the same time as I was discovering like Sgt. Pepper and and um you know, uh, a lot of the 60s kind of uh, psychedelic concept albums sure. and, you know, and then also electronic music because my mom had been a, done modern dance choreography when I was really little. Um, and she had like, so she had this really interesting record collection and some of it was my dad's as well. Um, you know, my dad and my mom broke up when I was very, very small, but like, um, the, so there, so it was like a really cool record collection because it was like I was I was really like I would go down there and just look at things that I thought had cool album covers and so it would be like John Cage or it would be like a radio radio uh, play from the from the you know 30s or you know or a psychedelic psychedelic record so so and I, and I was being influenced and performance art so so all those things i think were sort of in my little teenage brain and and i i would try to make little records uh you know kind of out of what i was feeling and out of the four track cassette world which was such a cool sounding world yeah it, it's interesting because um i was actually um crashing at at a at my local community college um not crashing like petitioning the class, but actually just showing up as if I were a student for the duration uh -huh. of the semester to a performance art class. And uh, it was on a lunch break during one of those classes that um, my friend Forrest put on the first imaginary symphony for Nomad. First imaginary symphony for Nomad. Performed by Vacuum Cleaner. 
it just was something I had never heard before, but immediately identified with. I was just like, this, this sonically gets me and I get it back. Um, but uh, talking more about your, your, um, like your parents' record collection, you know, and how that informed you at such an early age for that, that sort of a sound I feel like is not, you know, it's not the teen angst sort of thing that typifies what, uh, you know, it's not a, well, maybe it's a different kind of frustration, (laughs) involved emotionally in that music (laughs) but uh it's expressed in such a very um mature way and i feel like um having that be something that starts your musical journey is really interesting and um i want to play a clip right here of the silly putty symphony wait you have something from it no we uh, but we can't do that because (laughs) It uh, it no, oh, it, you, it, it exists only as a memory. So uh, oh, you want to? I was going to be amazed. I was like, how did you get, get that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's like probably one person. I think it might be in like my friend's parents' like basement or something. There might be like one cassette of it or something in existence. <laughs> For me, like my room and the create and the the world of imagination being able to go into. Uh, and recourse to the world of imagination was a bit of a salvation. It was sort of like an escape because, um, you know, it was like another world I could climb into. Uh, and uh, the fact that I was making it for for people that I loved that I couldn't be with uh, really made it, uh, captured a lot of the, created a lot of the spirit of it. And that also kind of like, so the, the actual content, the creative content, was born of that feeling i think and there was like one other thing my grandmother um her sisters were blind and my 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 paternal my maternal grandmother and i were incredibly close uh and she would send cassette letters because she'd gotten in the habit of sending them to her blind sisters back and forth and so she'd send me cassette letters so also there was like cassette the sound of cassette and a sort of intimacy and affection yeah, a lot of those cassettes that were so important to me are so much a part of my life. I, I don't know where they are. But it was funny because some of these things were more imaginary than real. Um, yet we watched them become real because people believed that they were real and then they were real. And then the next thing you knew, you know, you were out touring and it was called that thing that you'd imagined. But um so it was fun. It was a really, it was a really fun moment of learning how things go from being imaginary to becoming real. Which, of course, as you grow older and you live longer, you realize that's all the world is. Um, and I think it's hilarious that there's ever a time in your life where you don't realize that. But I think you have to be alive for a while, quite a while, to begin to really see it and be like, oh, no, everything. This is just a progression from the imaginary and the unreal to the real, and it never ends. Um, so, but it was, you know, that makes it a special time when you're beginning to discover that. That feels like sort of a theme that you have going throughout your work. Um, I, I just listened to the Orbiting Human Circus for the first time, like in a row, 
you know uh i was i I had listened to it as it was being released and then i kind of caught up revisited it um and god do i need a cup of coffee because i've been up for like 40 hours (laughs) yeah it's amazing how um this medium uh this new medium that has sort of taken taken over a lot of my creative life it's uh you know, it's like you used to make a record and a record was like 40 minutes if it was a long record. Um, and uh, now, you know, I'm, everything I make is five hours long. <laughs> so, I mean, it's and it's just, uh, it's amazing because um, the amount of things that I'm just doing all by myself in terms of pure hours, it's really wild. Uh yeah. So, 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 you know, especially because I used to take years to make a 40 minute record. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so, but it's been really cool with the Urban Human Circus. Uh, it's really nice for me because so many people are involved, even though my, my hands are on everything almost to an impossible degree. It's almost unsustainable. There was actually just broadcast, there was airing dates and airing hours so like at a certain hour on a certain day that was the new episode was coming out and that was it so yeah it was you know i was always racing that moment and there's even some funny stories like the the season finale of orbiting human circus of the air i was um i was uh up for two like i didn't sleep like i was up for two days and one night without sleeping at all working on it and um on the last night uh, I was like, I went into my bedroom and I had all the stuff in the, in the other room of the apartment, um, everything. And I just went into my bedroom to get something into the bedroom and the doorknob fell apart. And the part of the doorknob that goes into the wall was stuck in the wall. But like, I didn't have a screwdriver. Like I didn't have tools. I didn't have anything. And like literally, I was like, "What am I gonna do? I'm like locked in my bedroom, and I have to finish this. This has to Wait, go out at can eleven. I, can I please guess? I, oh, sure. Did you pull out your musical saw? <laughs> it wasn't in the bedroom. Um, no. What ended up happening was I got rescued. I got rescued by um, a friend who was helping me engineer some stuff. Came back but I was locked in the room for quite a while and I didn't know what it, I didn't have a phone. It was just so, it was so crazy. But so, yeah, so like the, and also so many times I didn't sleep. Like, so a lot of the work that I did was really sleep deprived. Um, and, uh, but you just have to finish it. Um, there was an episode in this season where it was this beautiful morning, um, and in a place where I'd never been. And, uh, and uh, I'd been working all night and like the sun had come up and working on the show. Like, like I was so tired that it was almost like it was all real. Like I was living inside of it or something. And, but I was still working on it, but it wasn't, I, I was doing trustworthy work. I felt, and like, I finished the episode in that state and I sent it off and I was just like, that's it. So, I don't know. So there's, there's a lot of great memories, but I, it's definitely not a sustainable way to work. <laughs>
so so now you've got a global audience and you're giving a spotlight to the singing saw i i feel like you're probably the foremost singing saw player in the country if not the world <laughs> at this point in time I don't, I don't know about that i don't know about that but um i'm definitely i love the saw you know? where does that come from um well i saw it done when i was a kid and i i thought it was a magic i mean i thought it was a magic mm. trick i thought it literally i thought it was a magic trick i didn't think it was real um and I think that alone fascinated me, you know, to, because I feel like music, music and what happens on stages and what happens when people really share uh, imagination stuff, you know, even if it's just like, I remember my great grandpa telling anecdotes or jokes, long jokes, you know, just anytime that people are really sharing that, I feel like I've always felt like there was a magic there, you know, like a real incredible magic that that was maybe my one of my favorite things about being alive or life on earth and so to find an instrument that literally felt like it was a magic trick to me um that just seemed un like i couldn't believe it um and i of course thought the sound was really beautiful and i do feel like it's just really it's an expressive sound you know it was the saw was always used along with the theremin and other beautiful magical instrument um was so often used in horror films early horror films and stuff like that i think people associated that sound without really listening to it with like oh it's spooky it's a ghost and of course it's a right, ghost, it's a ghost singing. which is but it's a beautiful ghost singing yeah. and the thing is that also the way that those instruments were played in this way that was um really goofy or blah, 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 you know so in those horror movies so i don't think people really understood what it could be in it when i was yeah that's the easy that's like sort of the amateur way to play it when that's uh just something that you can do if you fiddle around with it for a few minutes you can get some wacky sounds from it well and also it was a job right i mean you could get money to do it in a in a yeah, horror fully or something work. you know like, yeah. but uh it it's such a beautiful instrument and when i was first making music putting out records with the saw and, and sometimes i would play it for like my aunt's friends or something like that you know people would be like oh spooky and it and i wouldn't understand it because to me it was like it's a choir of angels you can't hear that because i was just listening to it at face value because mm -hmm. i just didn't have that association but they grew up with like those horror movies and stuff so as soon as they hear a saw Sure. And I was always waiting for the day that that would pass. You know, I was always waiting for the day that, like, just your average person could hear that sound for it's what it was and maybe hear it the way I was hearing it. And I do feel like that time has kind of come, you know, because my saws do kind of, I feel like I've always had, I've named them. and They always have personalities to me, but to be able to actually personify them and make them characters and to make saw music a part of the world and... Uh, has been, you know, has been incredibly satisfying to me. And certainly every time, like, I meet, it, you know, someone's kid or something is like, I learned how to play the saw, you know, uh, it's really exciting to me. Yeah. And, um, and now, so you, you put out a singing saw 
Christmas album. I snatched one up because I am a corny guy who likes to have a good selection of unique, nice Christmas time albums to put on. That's just a beautiful record that is predominantly singing saw. Um, and it yeah, really it shows great. off your sort of virtuosity. Like I we can we could tell just by hearing that clip that you've spent a lot of hours with that piece of hardware. And there's there's a solid bond. And you're not the first person to take the instrument seriously. I mean, you know, we had like Marlena Dietrich, who yep. also was mm -hmm. very adept at the singing saw. Marlene Dietrich, I, I adore her. I absolutely adore her. Um, and uh, I mean, her soft playing is the fact that she, I didn't know she was a soft player for a long time. Um, and so, of course, you know, that, that felt very special. But I, I adore her singing and uh, I adore her acting. Uh, her, you know, Blonde Venus and uh, like the, the film she made with Joseph von Sternberg are some of my favorite things in the world. And I just love her. Um, so yeah, I have her records. I listen to her records, like her songs a lot. Uh, we do here. Yeah. Is, is there anyone else that influenced you, um, on that particular instrument? Well, I, Moses Josea, who, um, was the, the only person I, I got one saw lesson in my life, uh, from him. And, uh, he's a New York fellow, a really, um, you know, he was already quite, like, he was quite, he seemed old, quite old to me when I, you know, I was quite young. Uh, See, so he was probably like 25 or something. No, I'm just kidding. He was, <laughs> he was, but, but, um, but like, uh, you know, so he's still, I mean, I saw him a few years ago, you know, but he plays in the subways in New York periodically, sometimes like playing the subways in New York. And um, he's an amazing guy. Um, and, uh, you know, he is just a wonderful person, human, and uh, a really, really wonderful song player. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, and then for um, Clara Rockmore's theremin playing um, was a really, was a revelation to me. Like the, those beautiful, beautiful recordings she made um, with her sister. Um, and it's all classical stuff, but it's the theremin and, you know, hearing what the theremin could be, um, hearing how, how, how beautifully and exquisitely it could be played. 
Um, but no, I'd have to say that the, the saws themselves, you know, the, the cool thing about playing the saw is that every saw has a different voice and a different range and a different, it's like, it's like the human voice. It's like every saw is a different personality, but as someone who, you know, I like to say encourages saws to sing, it's the way I kind of put it. I was just going to bring like, that up. Yeah. The, yeah. You're like, you know, you're taking these personalities, you're finding, you know, you can find it on at a garage sale or in, in somebody's, you know, relative's garage or, you know, in the basement of some house you're staying at, you know, a saw and, and you can look at it and be like, you know, I think you're a singer. And then you can find out what its voice is like. And through that voice, you know, you, your soul and your, you know, you can express things that you've never expressed before because you've never had that voice to express it with and so it's really special that way so the first imaginary symphony for nomad is something that took you a very long time to complete compared to a season of the orbiting human circus yeah yeah um because a lot of them some of the ideas and the material and the intention to make the record kind of started several years before it was done and i, and I started making it uh several years before like the um the the record was actually made chronologically almost um so the first half or the first third of it was probably made in in like 1995 or 1996 or something um it was like building an enormous model ship or something it was so intricate and it was such a big project that um you know i had to put it down sometimes and uh you know and do other things because i couldn't you know do them at the same time um so that's why yeah that took that that was many years in the making um, and that yeah. album definitely felt like a concept album it, it seemed like the sort of focal point of the record is that uh televisions have come from another planet to observe us and in turn we have started observing them The story of the record, the record is 
super narrative. Um, you know, it was told in a way that was um, jumping around in, in time and, and very structurally, I think, experimental. So the narrative was more there to be discovered. The, the, the televisions were life forms of observers who traveled, you know, observing uh, living life forms. And then they came and turned us into an observing life form. They turned us into a life form of observers. There's that part of it. But um, the whole thing kind of came from when I was a kid. Um, I liked the there was a black and white Superman TV show that was in reruns that you could see sometimes from like the distant past, like from the fifties, George Reeves, George, no, George Reeves, George Reeves. But he was the Superman that I knew because mm -hmm. that was um, before those movies. And when I was little, like that was the Superman I was introduced to was that 1950s television Superman. Cause also I didn't really, I, I, I didn't, I didn't come across comic books really I, as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I remember a conversation about him being dead and that he'd killed himself. He'd shot himself. They were talking about it. And I'd overheard this. And so it was like Superman was had shot himself was kind of what I was getting. And I asked why. And the answer I was given was that he was something called typecast and I didn't know what that was so I was like what's typecast and they were like well it's when you can't escape being the thing that you're perceived as being and so everyone saw him as Superman and he couldn't get away from being Superman oh my god um, and that that was why he killed himself and so that was kind of a childhood memory and something that I really I took that and I just you know it lived inside my brain and I, I started trying to un you know, understand it and 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 comprehend it. And then as I got older, I I, I learned more about that story and, and him, uh, George Reeves. And so I, this story was almost like a way to free his ghost. Like the idea of it was, in my mind, was that um, George Reeves was kind of a ghost and that um, – because there was that kind of there's a sort of idea that often follows suicides or things like that or or, or unresolved things that that they're sort of they, that that's how hauntings happen and i was certainly haunted in a funny way by it by trying to need needing to understand it and so the album was a way the story in a funny way was a way to to free that ghost to resolve that thing in imagination but the album basically the story is that it's like there's this um there's this kid and uh well in any event it, i i don't want to tell the whole story of the record now but basically um what ends up happening is that at the end of the record um you you kind of your it begins with sort of like george reeve or jeeves or your birth and the album does and he's born and uh from a womb of steel, so he's born out, born out of a vacuum cleaner on the record, but um, to this mad inventor uh, who um, was credited for inventing the TVs. But what TVs actually are are these creatures from other planets that that, that inhabit. They 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 basically have somebody on the planet when they're technologically ready invent their spacesuit that they can come. So the televisions are actually just their spacesuits. So when a when a life form is ready. They give somebody the idea, um, they plant the idea somehow in somebody's head, and then they make these bodies 
these spacesuits that they can then beam into to watch the life form. And so his father was that person on Earth. But at the end of the record, basically, the end of the record is this thing where you, you, um, the, the speeding bullet is a character on the record and it sings a song and the speeding bullet is coming for you. And if you keep listening, then you're basically risking your life and that, you know, you can die listening to the record. All those who wish to cease listening, please do so now. And for those of you who will continue on, we offer the best of luck and our sincere hopes that you will conclude this record still in full possession of your life. And then George Reeves, Superman, who's just flesh, he's just a real person. He's not a Superman. He's not. It's like the, the yeah. Superman is kind of like the image and he's just a person um, saves you and he takes the bullet for you. And then you live and then he's his he's freed. Television Superman was found moments ago dead of a single gunshot wound. More details to follow. At 6 a.m. this morning, daylight savings time, the President of the United States was found crying. White House spokesman declined to comment on this morning's crying episode. Um, Brian Dewan performed uh, those voices there. He was one of my heroes. He also drew the insert. Um, oh, is that right? And, uh, yeah, like I sent him a little comic that I'd drawn, like explaining the story, but my, I can only really draw clouds, smiling clouds and elephants. Um, so Brian, Brian's drawings and Brian's voice and Brian's, uh, Brian is sort of like a multimedia artist who I, um, I've always deeply admired. Uh, and so he, he, um, he did those announcements and, uh, yeah, he's really special. I wanted to ask you about the second imaginary symphony. It was more of a, it was a radio drama. Are all widget factories really cloud factories? Asked Nye. Mr. Ackerman shook his head. No, Nye, no. I suppose most any factory could be a cloud factory. You never know. And that's the point, no one does. That is, except for the cloud makers. And I've even heard tell of people who worked at cloud factories, who, for security reasons, hadn't even the slightest idea. How? asked Nye. By the same process usually reserved only for unexpected visitors. Atomic hypnosis. Atomic hypnosis? It's just like ordinary hypnosis, only much, much smaller. It was sort of, uh, you know, a movie on headphones with a terrific narrator. Brian Duan. <laughs> <laughs> the very so, same. That was, a perfect, that was a perfect transition. Yeah, no, that was Brian <laughs> as well. That was Brian. Brian makes these, uh, has made with his cousin these incredible electronic, these beautiful, amazing, extraordinary electronic instruments that are these big works of art uh, called Duanatrons. Uh, Brian has made extraordinary records he was a kind of an, a big influence on and, and a sometimes collaborator of uh, they might be giants uh in their in their formative years uh he made the uh, monument on the cover of their album lincoln he did the flying gramophone on the artwork from the airplane over the sea uh he's amazing two, is, uh, two iconic album covers right there 
Oh, he's, uh, you know, Brian is, uh, Brian is, um, just a pure soul and a pure, wonderful artist. Um, so if anyone likes what I do, um, please, and you don't know what Brian does, you, you should, his film strips, his film strips are, if you can find his film strips, they're, they're just, <laughs> there's not words. If you even so, yeah. know what a film strip is, dear listener, <laughs> But you've you've used a lot of antiquated equipment, like uh, you know, you, uh, wax cylinders and uh, you know reel to reel tape, and uh, I know that you have a staff lathe cutter for your radio program. But this has been a part of your album recording process too, and it gives it sort of a t- very timeless sound where. It's just like utilizing all the technology at hand that has been thrown by the wayside. Julian, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why. That's why, because it's beautiful. Like, because to me, you know, it's like human life, everything is transformed. And, but there's these things that still remain. And, you know, in your grandmother's house are these evidences of other times. And then, pretty soon your childhood becomes another time and 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 the stuff of these times is so expressive and i think what you begin to feel is that they're uniquely expressive and to me it was just always natural to think of those things as colors you look at time as a palette like i I think it's natural to hear the, the the mediums of your time and it just be like oh this is normal this is just uh colorless this is just what it is now and this is what things sound like. But it's always this really exaggerated thing that's really expressive of very specific things in reality. And you realize that 15 years later when you're like, wow, why did I have that mullet back then? <laughs> it, you know, it just, it just seemed to make so much sense <laughs> or whatever it is, your metaphoric mullet. And uh, <laughs> I just never understood why we throw things away. We throw whole worlds away. But for me... It's like time travel, or, or, or it's like I can sing into the wire recorder and my voice comes back at me out of the past is really what it feels like. It's a very powerful color or a very powerful tool to have. So I think all of these things together and having the incredible privilege of being alive now where we have so many of these things, you know, some of them exist and are preserved you know, so we can use these colors uh, of the past um, to make something new. Um, so I, I just find it beautiful and fascinating. And I love the machines. I love being with them. They have, they feel very soulful and, and they, they, they feel like friends. You know, they, they have a presence. So you're, you know, you're making something with them. I dreamt a hundred castles to wish freedom from bit about what's coming up for you there's there's a new orbiting human circus it's going to be a brand new story uh that's going to be another it might even be like two seasons length it might be, I think it's going to be like 14 episodes that's um all written basically written and uh there's an album that goes with it uh sort of like a concept album 
um, that it's so in a weird way, like the hours of audio that are the uh, the radio show podcast um, and the album together, I think, are like one piece. It's like a true giant concept album because that's kind of what what it is to me. It's almost like more of a traditional musical. um, And so it's kind of like part musical, part concept album, but also like very much like an acted out story. But then the album will also be, you know, a a companion to that. Um, So that is all in the works, but it's going to take a couple of years, probably, honestly, by the time that it's it's all done and, and, and put out. And then um, in the meantime, uh, the jazz quartet, the Saw Jazz Quartet, that's kind of become a part of the sound of the Orbiting Human Circus. Can you recommend a track that we can hear? Yeah, um, uh, the uh, it's called In- uh, Into the River Thames Quartet Version. Mm. Uh, there's two versions, it's quartet version, and that's the, saw, the jazz saw quartet. How do you feel about that pronunciation in Thames? Well, it's because the lyrics of the song are, um, it's sung, this, there's a vocal version of the song as well. And um, the song is sung by a, a, a seagull. And so the seagull pronounces the River Thames Thames. And, uh, and it's a good thing because he ends up rhyming it with flames. <laughs> so, <laughs> who is this seagull? So, well, he's the character. He's the main character in the song. That's why it's into the river Thames. Um, but uh, that ensemble is going to make an album now. We're making an album. We're working on an album now with the Saws, and it's such a great group of people. Um, it's so much fun. Like um, Gavon, uh, the bass player, is from France. Uh, Kolia uh, is, is from Croatia. Um, and uh, and Benji, the pianist, is is uh, is like a like a he's from New York, and um, and so it's a very but it's a really fun group of people, and I, I really love playing the, this music together. So oh, we're going to make an album of stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. So I'm really excited about that. Merge is going to put that out, um, and uh, it's going to be an LP and everything too. And and so we're we're working on that now. In the meantime. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, major organ and the adding machine. Mm. I watched that the other day with my daughters. Both my kids said their favorite scenes were the ones with the little girl, and um, they really liked the hats that they put on. 
that transport them to other places in mm-hmm. yeah the sort of a teleporting is it's like a short sci-fi film that goes along with this very music concrete album forever in my mind is embodied uh congratulations thank you also that was kind of famously the first emergence of jeff mangum of that band Neutral Milk Hotel that you played in once upon a time allegedly he appeared and he he just appeared in a lobster suit well i mean there's no there's no need for the allegedly i mean if you if you know jeff um he's more likely to turn up in a lobster suit than not um and, and, and if he's going to have to appear in front of a camera he'd probably want to be in a lobster suit um and so it's actually a very natural action. Um, well, you know, the, the, the group, um, the, the record was a, you know, it's funny, I was about to say about the, the record we're making now with the, 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 the saw jazz quartet the, for the Orbiting Circus. So it was, I was going to say it was just very joyful. Um, and, and then you start talking about Major Organ. That was very joyful. That was, you know, that was a bunch of friends, a very, very big, I mean, that was like... It, we, at the time, Elephant Six, we were so many people. At the end of the day, it was like there were so many friends who'd kind of converged on Athens, Georgia. And and Elephant Six is the name of just sort of not so much as a label, the Elephant Six Collective, which if you read the liner notes on any one of these albums, then you're going to find places to go and sort of bunny trail off into another world of music. We were an enormous, long, extended family of of friends who were all just trying to make, you know, some kind of interesting art, generally audio art or music, but we were all really excited about doing it and and supporting each other and doing it with each other. And that record was like just a fun thing that was was passed from hand to hand in the most fun way. And it was just a a big group of people who, you know, loved, loved art and loved each other making something together in a, in a really fun way. And, you know, and Jeff and I and Laura Carter and Robbie uh, from the music tapes, Cuchero all lived in a house together and um, it started at our house and, uh, and then it would kind of go to other houses and come back to our house. And I think that we were, you know, kind of like, composing it on the whole until near the end when it kind of like, I think Eric Harris from Olivia Trimmer Control kind of took it and ran with it and, and, and saw oversaw the finishing of it. Uh, but anyway, it was this very communal thing to the point where like when the record made royalties, we just didn't know what to do uh, because like there were so many of us who were like, what's the point of splitting up these royalties? It'll be like $2 a person. Um, you know, so it just went into this like bank account and then eventually like, you know, I think I wanted to free an out, buy an elephant and free it, you know, like from the circus or something, mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't know. I, I was always, my ideas were always very unrealistic, but um, they had the idea eventually of making the movie and that was the best, that was wonderful. So they made that major Oregon movie um, and uh, all of Athens was involved in that. And that was really fun. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's one story I can tell you about that movie, which was just, 
um, there was this, uh, I would do these caroling tours and, and lullaby tours where I would go from house to house, like usually several houses a night in each city. And I know you saw one of those. I know, yeah. I know years and years ago you told me. And, um, but like um, we had this singing TV in our band, the music tapes, uh, you know, and I wasn't, we couldn't bring the TV on this kind of tour because we were doing like five shows a night in five different houses in each city and stuff. But um, the the host of the house had made a little fake static like he'd put a TV on static, literal static, and then he'd drawn the face of our TV um, on saran wrap and wrapped the TV in saran wrap so the TV had a face. And the, and the little boy came up to me at the end of the show, and he was like too shy to ask his question. So his mom told me, and she was like, he wants to know if that was the real static out front. And I was just like, oh, my oh, God. Wow. I was like, this kid knows who static is and wants to know if that's the real static. I mean, that blew my mind. But then fast forward a couple of years later, we were actually doing one at their house now. When we walked in the door, like all the kids were gathered around the TV the way kids often are at holiday time. And I heard this conver- I overheard this conversation, like, how many times have you seen it? I've seen it five times. I've seen it seven times. And uh, it was the Major Organ movie <laughs> that they were watching when I saw the TV. It was the Major Organ movie. I was like, oh, my God, this group of children is going to be this is going to be the most interesting group of children when they grow up. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. So you had Static, the singing television. You must have some kind of a mechanics background or at least know some people because you're also notorious for having a seven-foot-tall metronome at your concerts. And, uh, like, I am I just imagining that you guys also had, like, giant hands clapping yeah, I know it's it, a, it's a machine. It's okay. like a, it's like a blue box with two two um, wooden arms with giant hands that are made of resin, and uh, there's a there's a lever uh, that controls it, um, and it makes like a big kind of like sound. Um, the metronome was a was actually a um, like an acoustic drum machine. Like you could program different beats. Wow, uh, there were just these. There's these three wheels in the back of it. It's not actually a metronome in the sense that it does have an arm and the arm is attached to the mechanism. It's attached to these three wheels, but it's actually motor driven. And, um, you know, one thing about the metronome that used to drive me crazy was everybody would uh, refer to it as a prop, which it wasn't a prop. It was making the rhythm that you were hearing. And I just couldn't imagine why you you couldn't look closely enough to see that or, or that you would, you know, you wouldn't, you would want that to be true. And then you would look and you would see that it was true. You know, this beautiful miracle of a machine happened. And I'm saying that because I didn't build it. Like I, you know, I mean, I just made a sketch in a notebook. It's like these people I love made it happen. And, and so I'm as in awe of it as anyone. And we even turned it around and demonstrated it. We started doing that because I really wanted people to understand what they were seeing. But uh, anyway, I'm glad now that it, I have to say it's like so gratifying to feel like people's awarenesses, or I don't know how to put it into words, but I feel like people get us now or get, get, I, I don't, I no longer feel so worried that no one's going to get what I'm trying to do. And that's incredibly gratifying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one nice thing about now. Yeah, I think. I think it's a beautiful thing that that you're doing. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, have a have a good night. Much love. Bye, Julie.
That was Julian Coster of the Music Tapes, who we're hearing right now. This song is called The Dark is Singing Songs, Sleepy Time Down South, from the album Mary's Voice. If you want to learn more about the music tapes, you can find some links on this episode's website at lowprofilepodcast.com. Thanks to Julian for doing the interview. Thanks to Christy Gressman at WNYC for helping me with some background. And thanks so much to you for listening, subscribing, and recommending Low Profile to your friends. This is Mark Lee Morrison, wishing you well. Catch you again in a couple of weeks.